You made it. Welcome again. Chris Kilby's in the house. Welcome to Chris. <laughs> Glad to see you. Chris is on sabbatical and uh, he's a friend of mine, another pastor here in the city. Um, it's good for us to be together, isn't it? Even though so many are away. And we'll be uh, are looking, as uh, Margaret just reminded us, that, that we've been looking for some months now, because we've had a few breaks, at what some people call the Ten Commandments, or in many ways what um, I prefer to call the Ten Words, because that's what they're called in the Bible. They are these Ten Words that God speaks to the Israelites, his people. And remember, the context is really important. They've been rescued from Egypt. They've been uh, spectacularly kind of uh, rescued out of slavery. Uh, and they brought out to this place in the desert uh, by the mountain. As God had promised, he brought them there to worship him. They've been promised a land. So, you know, imagine this bunch of people there with uh, in the desert and God speaks there because at that point in Exodus 19 they begin to realize that something else is going on he says to them look I don't want to just rescue you I don't, I'm not just saying that that uh, I want you to come and worship me here in the desert I don't just want you to know that we're going to a promised land but I want you to know that you are in a relationship with me and something called a covenant is kind of drawn up uh, and he's saying to them, look, I want you to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And he draws near to them in his holiness and he speaks these words that they actually hear. And as we thought a few uh, weeks ago, uh, they heard it with their own ears and it was so overwhelming for them. They say to Moses later in the passage, look, <laughs> in future, you, God just let God just speak to you. You know, it's too much for us to hear his actual voice speaking like this. And so that's kind of what happens as the book of Exodus goes on. And these words talk about the way they're to live as God's people. First of all, in their relationship with him, living with him, the Lord, and then the words move on to talk about how they're going to be living with other people. What their relationships within their communities are to be, their families, their society, how they're to kind of respect one another and be faithful to one another and not lie and all of that stuff that we've been looking at. And today, we're on the very last one. In Exodus 20, verse 17, it's coming on the screen, so there's no need to turn to it. We will be going to other places as well. And it's an interesting command because it kind of starts with this neighbor thing. Well, let's look at it. There it is. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It kind of starts with the neighbor, but it goes in somewhere else, and we, as we shall see. Now Jesus, uh, when he was here on earth, summarized the whole of the law uh, in two key kind of summary phrases. He did it on more than one occasion, and the Apostle Paul picks it up in Romans as well as Galatians. And Jesus sums up the law in two phrases. He says, love your, uh, the Lord your God with everything you've got, roughly translated, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this last word, this last word about coveting, actually touches on both of these. It touches on our relationship with our neighbor, but it also really crucially touches on 
our love for God or for what? That's where we're going. So let's have a look and, and kind of think, first of all, what is coveting? Basically, it's about wanting something that you can't have or you shouldn't have. And so that's why in the verse we uh, just read, it makes sense in that culture. So you mustn't want your neighbor's house or their property. You mustn't be kind of tempted to want their wife or their husband uh, or their means of transport. Um, there's two references. Is like you mustn't uh, covet their ox. And the ox was used for work. Uh, and the donkey was used for other forms of transport. So I suppose if we were, oh, this is a bit of a stereotype, but, but if we were in Trump's America, maybe we, uh, we, we'd be saying amongst his supporters, you mustn't cover your, your neighbor's Ford pickup or, or their Porsche. You know, the, 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 the ox is used like the tractor for doing the work and the uh, donkey, you might not think of a donkey as a Porsche exactly, but you know, it was the kind of, the, the personal transport. Unless you got a really bad one, then of course you may think of it in that way. So um, that's what it's really about in that context. Now, in the New Testament, the used, word used for coveting just means desiring something very, very strongly. And it's not necessarily always a bad thing. It's not necessarily bad to want something strongly. Uh, Paul actually uses a similarly linked word in, in 1 Corinthians when he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And that's a kind of connected word. And there's nothing wrong with wanting something very strongly uh, if it's all right, if it's the right thing. But mostly it's used in a way that it, the context reveals that it's not a good way and the coveting generally means desiring something very strongly, focused in a way that is harmful and destructive, as if it's something you should not have. And you can see how it can lead to other things, as we thought of the neighbor's ox and uh, wife and so on and husband and so on. So you might be wanting something that they've got and you might want it so much that you might end up stealing it. Or you might not want your neighbor around for some reason. You might want to kill them. Or you might want to um, get something going with their wife or husband. What you start with wanting can lead to other kinds of activities. Crucially, it's all about what's going on in our hearts There's a very interesting little uh, reference to this in the book of Romans. Would you just like to turn up page 1133? Some of the passages will come on the screen. A couple won't. This is the one that won't. And I just want to just get a little flavor from here. Uh, It's in the midst of a rather complicated argument about the law and the Christian. uh, And I'm not going to go into all of that. But it's revealing in that uh, how this commandment works. Or this word works. So verse 7 of Romans 7, that's at the bottom of page 1133, under the title, The Law and Sin. By the way, those titles aren't part of the original Bible. That's why we don't usually read them out when we uh, read the passage. They're with bits in bold. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I thought I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So, you, you see the point. That what, what Paul is saying is very intriguing. The thing about coveting or wanting the wrong thing very, very badly is that you've kind of broken it before you've realized, haven't you? It's something that goes on inside of you. As we shall see, it's connected to the heart. And Paul is saying, look, if, you know, if only the law hadn't said don't cover it, and then I start thinking about that, and, and, I, and then suddenly I realize, whoops, <laughs> I, I've done it, because something in me kind of pushes me in that direction. The key thing about it is that it's an internal thing. It's a heart thing. It's the last commandment in the list of words in Exodus 20, but it's actually the very first one we break before breaking any of the others often, isn't it? So the desire, the wanting something so much, can lead to the activity that is uh, unhelpful and destructive, and God says you shouldn't do it. And that taps into what we heard about what Jesus said about adultery and about killing. He said, look, you know, it's bad enough to really hate someone that much and think, I wish they were dead. That's as bad as actually killing them, you know, as far as, you know, what God sees and his holy standards are. And he said the similar thing with the command about adultery. It's when we're driven and desiring something that you can't have or you don't have. And it can take it over. J. John wrote an amazing little book called Ten on each of the commandments. And he says this. You know, he said coveting or wanting something that you don't, you can't or shouldn't have. That desire, that thing... He said, once you start, it's like drinking seawater. You just, the more you drink, the thirstier you become. And, you know, you can take a look at our own hearts, maybe, and the culture around us, the world we live in, and we see that's true. Now, in the New Testament, the the word that is often used for coveting is translated mostly as greed, particularly in the NIV. And that's often about wanting stuff. Lots of it. Wanting more and more stuff. And we live in a world, don't we, where the expectation is that we all need more stuff. We all need to keep buying stuff. You know, the government would sometimes imply that it's our patriotic duty to buy lots of stuff because only then can the economy grow and everybody gets blessed according to the government or certain aspects of market capitalism. People only get blessed if the market grows expectation we all need indeed there's a whole industry dedicated to convincing us of this fact advertising that's the whole point of it and you know it can be very damaging coveting is damaging jesus in in the gospels uh, gets involved in a discussion between uh, two people here's the passage up it's in luke 12 Someone in the crowd once said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, The man, sorry, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you? And he said to them, That's all the others, the disciples and everyone, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's the word covetousness. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
And it's dam- the damage is seen here, if you knew that culture, you see, what's happening, there's a big argument going on between two brothers about the money, about the inheritance or the land that was their family uh, uh, money. And actually, one of them is... It's so kind of, it got so bad that they're willing to risk their entire kind of family future. Because in that culture where people didn't have that much land, there's a real problem if you have an inheritance system, which means you divide it. Because actually half the land isn't enough for two families or maybe three families, if it's a third, to all get enough off it. Off it. There has to be some other kind of arrangement. So uh, that's what's going on. And Jesus says to the guy, look, watch out. You want the land. It's become the main thing for you. It's it's damaging. And then he says, life is not about how much land you've got. Life is not about your possessions. And that's the important truth. And he goes on to tell a story to make the point. Very well-known story, but we won't do it now. Not got time. But it's not just in families that it can be damaging. And, I mean, who of us, uh, you know, hasn't got a friend, maybe, you know, a friend where there's been a real lot of bad feeling in a family over an inheritance? It can be damaging in families, but it can also be damaging in Christian communities. Here's a passage from James chapter 4. Let's read that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enemy against God? We're going to be doing James in the the autumn, so uh, we'll cover this passage in more detail later. But this is to a Christian community. What kind of church was this, you might be asking? Well, we don't really know. It could have been to different churches. But are they actually murdering each other? Well, I think probably not, although who knows, it is possible. I was visiting a a country in uh, South Asia where somebody was uh, involved in a church and he did actually tell me of how there was such a bust up over the church that uh, people in the congregation paid a hired killer to come and kill another member of the congregation. So it might have been like that. It does sometimes happen. But anyway, the point here is that their desires... Their, their, their strong insistence on what they want is out of control. And what's happening, it's damaging, it's, spirit, it's affecting their spiritual lives. That's the point. So what does it say? They're, they're not praying, and God's not going to answer them anyway. He says, you're adulterous, you're like being unfaithful to God. Because something more important than God in your head is driving you. You're being driven by what you want. Churches can get like this, can they? Can we? Can you? Can I? Being driven by what we want. Whether it's for stuff or maybe it's for our precious ambition. Maybe it's for what someone else has. Maybe it's just a pastor thing, but has anyone else sometimes been jealous about how another church is getting on? Maybe that's just me sometimes. Because we're driven by what we want. 
and it can do us harm. Coveting, being driven by what we want, it harms our life with God. Now the parable of the sower Jesus told in Mark 4. He talks at one point of thorns growing up. Remember the story and choking the seed. And Jesus says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. There's that word again, coveting. The desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what we're kind of desiring, what's ruling our hearts, what's the main thing that can harm our life with God? Jesus once summed up the commandments in Matthew 19. Remember, a young man came to him and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, you, you know, you keep the commandments. And he says, the man said, which ones? And Jesus listed them all off. And the list is interesting. He, li- he lists the ones that relate to other people. He Because re- he's coming, the thing in the tale is the one about God he's coming to later. But he lists the ones about other people, murder. He said, you know what the commandments say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. He doesn't mention coveting, but he does say, love your neighbor as yourself. He sums up the coveting command with something you should be doing instead. Because the thing is, coveting stops us loving our neighbor. If you really can't live without your neighbor's wife, car, stuff, or you're constantly being kind of annoyed and irritated because you haven't got what other people have got, you're not loving them, are you? Especially if you're planning how you might steal their car or take their customers or something. But it also points to a way out of it. Because not coveting equals loving my neighbor. Here's maybe something we can do instead of coveting. Loving other people. So I want us to think as we go into the kind of second half about, well, okay, how can we find a different way? What's the alternative? Well, I'd like to suggest that there are uh, three ways that we can find a different way. And here comes the first one. The first one is to understand the root problem. Understand what it is that's really going on with coveting. See, coveting is interesting. It's not just the first thing we do wrong before we actually break a commandment in our own kind of lives. It's actually the very first sin that the human race ever committed. Ever thought of that before? Do you want to have a look at that? It's in Genesis chapter 3, and we will go to this, because it's good to hear the rustling of the leaves of the papers uh, as we turn our Bibles to chapter uh, page 5 and Genesis chapter 3. It's a very familiar account of how it all went wrong in the beginning. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. 
You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, from it, your eyes will be opened. Sorry, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the rest, as they say, is history or salvation history. The woman saw the fruit and it was desirable. Suddenly, she really wanted it. And so did the man, because it says he was with her. That's what it says. He was with her and he had some too. Here's the question. Why did it suddenly become so desirable? Presumably it wasn't that desirable until till then. We don't read anything about them having to, you know, put up a fence around it or, you know, kind of help themselves be disciplined not to go near that tree or, you know, have a, have a kind of a, uh, a watch set up between them. You know, if you go to sleep between six and ten and I'll go to sleep between twenty and four so that neither of us can come and take the fruit of the tree. There was, the, no, well, I'm, I'm speculating, but you see the point. It became desirable at a certain point. And what was that point? It was the point when the woman initially and I believe the man was fully involved, believed a lie about God. The snake said, he doesn't want you to be like him. In fact, he said, and what he said isn't true, you won't die. And the human couple turn from trusting God's loving provision, God's loving boundaries for their good, They believe a lie about God, that he doesn't want their best, that he only wants to keep them from having what he's got because he's such a miserable person. He wouldn't want to share what... I mean, they're living in a universe that he's just given them to share and enter into fully. But no, suddenly he's become this miserable, uh, restrictive God who won't let them have anything from the tree. Something happened in their hearts and almost before they knew it, They decided that God's way, God's presence, God's promises, God's provision, God's boundaries just weren't enough for them. They needed more. They needed a bite of that fruit. Now sometimes in the New Testament, coveting is linked with idolatry. And this is why. The root of it is here in this account. Because when our desires displace God in our hearts, the desire can become a substitute for him and all he wants for me. And that's possible in desiring good things. It's a temptation for those of us in Christian ministry or in anything you're, you're doing for God. You, you know, why do you want it to be successful? Why do, you want, you know, why do I want the church to do well? Why do I want to see 220 Christians come, people come to faith in five years or whatever it is? Is, 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 that, is that for me or is it for God? Is it, are my desires ahead of... Am I swapping that around? Did you see the point? Our desires, even for good things, can become a substitute for God and 
all he wants for us. And if we get this, if we understand this, the root problem, then I think it helps us not just to covet, but, but to positively see that God is the center of our worship. Jesus is the Lord of our hearts. That's the main thing, not what I want. Even if what I want so desperately, even if that's a very good thing. You could try, J. John in his book has this coveting test. Can you read that? Is that okay? You could test yourself. It's a a way of testing whether coveting is creeping in. I, I quite like it. So here's some questions. What do I like to think about most? What do I like to talk about the most? What do I invest most of my time and energy in? Where do I spend? What do I spend my money on? And here's a bit of a killer. Is there anything I would find hard to give up to save my closest relationship? J. John's test. So let's understand and be aware of this root problem. A desire for something displacing God in our hearts because that is idolatry and that's the connection so let's understand the truth uh, understand uh, the root problem and secondly let's live the truth with all these lies being pumped out in our society we need to be tuned into the truth don't we so maybe we ought to be kind of saying um says who (laughs) to the hidden assumptions behind the ads or the minute in place. I don't know whether you're like me, but I sometimes talk to my television. Is that a bad thing? It is a Samsung, and I suppose it might be able to hear what I'm saying, and so on. But, you know, maybe we should be shouting, no, <laughs> that's your opinion. You know, do I, do I really, is that really the message I want to take on board? I don't say we should all be kind of... Um, like the people that uh, on Gogglebox, but perhaps we should shout at the TV more often. Or to the uh, manipulators. Because our hearts need to be constantly recalibrated and constantly kind of saying, maybe as family, sometimes to our children, you know, that's not right, is it? How does that work? We say to them. And we need to be living in the truth about God. Through the Bible, through his word. That's why we need to be reading it and kind of absorbing it. Whatever system you have, find one that works for you. That Where at least you've got some daily kind of exposure to, to God's truth. That's why worship, praise together is important. Or people, uh, I sometimes find, you know, you, you listen to a, uh, a, a worship CD. I've only got two or three in my collection. I'm not a great worship CD person. But, yeah, you know, I've put one on in the car. Sometimes you, you're, you're reminded of truth and it gets into you at an emotional level. That's the great thing about music. It kind of gets in, comes in your brain and your heart in a different way. Reminds you of, of what's true, what's lovely. What's, you know, Paul says, think about these things in Philippians 4. Getting together in a church community, that's why it's important that we gather with God's people because it's part of this calibration process as we hear his word, as we seek him together, as we pray. Getting together in our small groups, it's all part of how we live in the truth about God, about who he is, about what he's done. 
realizing that there's a battle that's going on for our hearts and minds. And we're not immune from that battle just because we became a Christian five years, ten years, fifteen years, or in my case, many more years than that ago. The battle is still going on. And so we need constantly to be kind of reminding ourselves about the truth as apart from all this other stuff that's kind of coming in from all around us. Now, of course, not everything that comes in is, is erroneous or wrong. Of course not. There's some very good stuff out there. But some of it isn't helpful. Some of it kind of undermines God's truth. So we need to be discerning. But we also need to be living with the truth about ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes I need to ask myself, why do I feel the way I do at certain times? You know, perhaps uh, maybe you're not like me, but sometimes it's certainly in the past and even now. That kind of feeling when someone else succeeds, someone else does something really well that you kind of think you couldn't do or you wish you could do. Or, as I said before, when, when the church isn't going so as well as I like it to. Or when something happens and I blow a fuse or sink into overwhelming despair. And I'm not talking about mental health here. I know some people, some of us live with overwhelming despair and, and that's a challenge. That's a different challenge. But when it, that feeling is linked with something that is kind of tapping into maybe a desire you had or I have and it's not kind of worked for me but it's worked for them and and you know you get oh yeah you know, when you get those feelings they can be a an indication of what's going on in our hearts what's ruling us what's running us or sometimes when we're just reacting out of all proportion these can all be clues i find in my life anyway about what's going on in my heart who am i really trusting And then the Bible talks about contentment. Now that's not very popular in our culture. As I say, it's a bit of a different kind of direction to where everyone else is going. But Paul in Philippians 4, you turn it up later if you like, has an amazing little phrase. He says, you know, I've learned to be content. Paul the Apostle, he's in prison. He said, I've got everything I need. I'm fine. He said, I've learned to be content. Sometimes I've had a lot and sometimes I've had nothing. But I've got Jesus. And he said, I've learned to be content. And that is something of process, a learning. And that's where some of people find the whole spiritual disciplines aspect very helpful because it is a way of learning things through the ways that we behave. So actually, things like fasting, like going without food for a while, or fasting from other things, saying, well, I'm not going to buy that luxurious thing I was going to buy because I don't really need it, and hey, I'm not going to. I'll fast. Giving, giving stuff away. Instead of buying the mink coat uh, or the um, jet ski, you know, you could give the money away. Or another of the spiritual disciplines is simplicity, embracing a simple life in certain areas. It doesn't mean you all have to be monks or nuns or you know live you know in hair shirts you know, every, you know whole heart you know for every part of life. But there may be some parts of our life where we think, Do you know, I could I could live more simply in that area. You know, I don't have to go to a restaurant, you know, 
six days a week can take a day off on a Sunday because it's the Sabbath. You know, maybe we'll just go out less often. But, you know, still enjoy it. See what I mean? Or maybe oh, it's, up. it's an individual thing. Don't let me you know, tell you what to do. But as a way of kind of living simply. So we live in the truth of who God is, who we are as his people, aware of our need to learn to trust and keep going. That's the second thing we can do. Understand the root problem and live the truth. Finally, we want to welcome the Holy Spirit, to go with the flow of the Spirit. Now, the story doesn't end in Exodus, does it, with those ten words. Through the Old Testament, God promised that a time would come when his standards, his truth, his law would be internalized. It's a heart thing. I've said that several times. And look what God promises. Here's one of those promises. Just look at that. In Ezekiel 36, part of the Old Testament, kind of looking forward, I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Lots of the law was about trying to get, keep people clean from the stuff around. And your idols, that was also part of the law, to try and keep people from you know, worshipping God alone. But look what he goes on to say. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What a promise. The promise of a new heart. The promise of his spirit moving us to follow these laws these boundaries, these ways to live. Jeremiah in the Old Testament saw something similar and he uh, says, he's quoted in Hebrews 8, look what it says. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Again, notice the heart there. I will write the laws on their house. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's the promise. A new heart. The spirit within us to move us to live God's way. His ways written in our hearts. And, and the writer to the Hebrews says, that has come to us through Jesus, through what Jesus has done. When he died on the cross for us, when he rose again for us as our ascended king and the one who sent the Holy Spirit himself in our hearts. All of this is what Jesus has done. So we can live in a different way. Look at Jesus' promise. This is one of my favorite of Jesus' words. Jesus stood and said, he's in Jerusalem. He stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Remember what J. John said about coveting is like drinking seawater? Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, 
That's that faith, that willingness to accept what Jesus has done and welcome him into our lives as we turn from wrong and trust in him. Anyone who ever believes in me, as scripture has said, perhaps he was referring to that Ezekiel verse, I don't know, or some other parts of Ezekiel. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. What is our most profound desire physically? Thirst. Water. You can't live without it for more than what? Three days is it? Then you're dead. Jesus says come and drink from me. To the woman in John 4, he said, If you drink what I give you, you will never thirst again. It will become eternal life in you. So as we understand the root problem, as we live the truth, we ask Jesus, fill me, help me, flood my heart with your wonderful presence. Move me to run after what you want most, trusting you. I give you my desires, Jesus. Lord God, I give you these things that rule my heart. Bring them into line with your heart, with what you want. And then that love of Christ starts overflowing in love and worship to the Lord our God and love for our neighbor. It's a way to live and the life to live it. It's not just saying, keep those commands anymore. (laughs) It's saying, I'm promising you, with my help, you can live this way. Because I can change your heart and I can fill you with my spirit. It's what Jesus is saying. It's a gift of his amazing, abundant grace. Two questions. What is your heart set on? Worth thinking about. And the other question is, why don't you just do what Jesus promised? He would uh, encourage us to do according to his promise. Ask and receive. Ask him. For that. Yeah, you've maybe been filled with the Holy Spirit before. That's okay. You need him now. Lord, I need you to live your way. I need your spirit. I need this heart to be continually restored and renewed so that I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength and love my neighbor as myself for his glory. Let's uh, respond as we worship.